Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. So, Robert. Yeah. Cyborg. The uh, word cyborg. You hear that. What does it mean to you? What is it? What, what pops up immediately? Ah, uh, well, you know, I'm, it, it kind of depends on how far back in my own timeline I go. Like, I can't help but instantly go back to being a kid. Yeah. Where cyborg meant Terminator. Cyborg meant Robocop. And so you, you have, and I are both children of the eighties and that's yeah, really where yeah. cyborgs were at their height of popularity probably, right? Yeah. This idea that like there's a machine, but it's, it's got at least a little bit of humanity to it. But nothing, nothing that's going to hold it back too much from yeah. being like a, you know, a terrorizing robot or this, this, this brutal metal badass. Yeah. I, um, and I, I tease this a little bit on social media, but for me, I immediately go to a comic book character named Cyborg. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's uh, a character that was uh, first created in the 70s, and that's, it, you know, 70s, 80s, that's when I was reading mm-hmm. these comic books. Uh he is an African-American character who becomes a cyborg because he's in some kind of like athletic accident or a car accident or something. And his dad is like a cybernetics genius and rebuilds his body mm-hmm. and he becomes a superhero and joins the Teen Titans. A lot of people out there may know this character from the, the Teen Titans cartoon show in the last decade. Yeah, my nephew was telling me all about Cyborg. Oh, really? And I uh, was hanging out with him in the past few months. And yeah. it, it was kind of, I was impressed because it sounds like Teen Titans has done a good job of sort of giving a thoughtful treatment of Cyborg. Like, what does yeah. it mean that this character is a little bit uh, machine and a little bit human? Yeah, what they, kind of middle ground do. is he walking? It's kind of, I mean, the cartoon is, is more of a comedy, but so he, the, the caveat that I wanted to place on this is, you know, DC is rolling out its big summer blockbuster universe of superhero movies mm-hmm. and Cyborg is going to have his own movie and he's going to be in the Justice League movies. Okay. And I, I haven't seen it, but I guess that Batman v Superman movie, spoilers, like hints at him mm-hmm. in some way. Uh, so, I kept thinking as we were doing the research for this episode, which if you guys out there haven't guessed by now is about cyborgs. Yeah. Uh, I kept thinking, you know, the people who are writing and doing all the pre-production on that cyborg tentpole movie right now, I really hope they listen to this episode because we've got a lot of interesting themes going on here with the idea of cyborgs in general. And and that is what this episode is going to um, revolve around. Uh, Now, certainly we've had episodes in the past uh, that have dealt with sort of like mind machine interfaces, including, mm-hmm. um, uh, Joe and I did one in the past few months. I'll make sure we link to that on the landing page for this episode. And then we'll do, be doing uh, episodes in the future, I'm sure, about cybernetic enhancements, prosthetic limbs, et cetera. Yeah. But this episode is, as the title uh, implies, it's about what do we think about when we think about cyborgs? What is the, the meaning of cyborg as a word and as a trope and as a metaphor? For understanding the human experience. Yeah, and what I especially got out of it is that cyborg in general, there's a lot of philosophical arguments to make that we're already cyborgs Mm -hmm. and that it is sort of like the natural evolution towards transhumanism, which is another thing we talk about on this show quite a bit. 
Uh, and I want to read a quote by Donna Haraway, who we're going to talk about later. But this really struck me as being crucial to us kind of thinking throughout the episode about. She says, technology is not neutral. We are inside of what we make, and it is inside of us. We're living in a world of connections, and it matters which ones get made and unmade. So she's not just talking about, like, you know, pop sci-fi, you plug a USB port into your ear, cyborg, right. that kind of connection. She's talking about, like, cultural connections as well and sort of how we define reality based on that. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that is just, in general, let's try to hold on to that while we're talking about all this stuff. You two out there, think yeah. about it. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, cast aside your sci-fi ideas Look, as well. Yeah, because those Robocop. are helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I think she even, I can't remember she, if she mentions Robocop in her writing. Yeah. But she definitely mentions some of the sci-fi visions of Cyborg because that's yeah. part of the metaphor. Yeah. And we will, uh, you know, if we haven't thoroughly satiated your pop culture Cyborg references, we'll make some more throughout <laughs> the episode. But there's too many, I think, maybe to, to get them all. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're just, just they're rampant. Yeah, especially in the wake of Terminator and RoboCop. Just yeah. just dealing with films yeah. alone, there's so many fabulously horrible B movies with cyborgs in them. <laughs> yeah, totally. But before we get into the, uh, the 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 word cyborg and where that comes from, uh, let's talk a little bit about cybernetics, uh, which um, one of the the core papers here comes from uh, MIT math, mathematician Norbert Weiner, who wrote cybernetics or control and communication in the animal and machine back in 1948. And this is a work that dealt with information theory with a focus on feedback and the similarities between a a vast group of different phenomena from everything from throwing a ball to running a company to launching launching a missile. It's all about you're doing things, you're getting feedback, and that allows you to, uh, for rational control of everything from machines to economic systems to communities, uh, and even a way to arguably tackle wicked problems. Yeah. Um, I didn't use the term wicked problems, but essentially that was kind of the, the area he was getting into. Yeah, and I think one thing that's important to, to keep in mind about uh, Weiner's research, or I guess just, it's not really research as much as just sort of like a general like pitch for the future. Right, saying like, this is a field, this is an approach that we can yeah. use to advance and to understand. He's coming right on the heels of World War II, uh, and he is very much in particular considering cybernetic systems as being constituted by flows of information. Uh, and there's a really great article by a woman named Catherine Hales. Uh, and she's, she's at it, or at least this is hosted at UCLA. She may not be there anymore, but she's faculty. And, uh, she's basically looking at like the idea of Weiner's like version of cyborgism and how it mixes with sort of liberal humanism as well. Mm-hmm. And she is, my understanding, maybe not a student of, but a disciple of Donna Haraway, who we're going to talk about extensively later. Um, but basically, the, 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 the Weiner version goes like this, right? And we're, we're going to use this uh, analogy a lot, I think. If a blind man is using a cane, is he a cyborg? And the Weiner argument would say yes, because it's about the flow of information, right? right? The flow of information going through the cane is is building reality for the blind man. Therefore, it makes him a cyborg. The other argument he would probably make is a deaf person using a hearing aid is right. a cyborg, right? Yeah, and that is going to be a recurring theme. Like, to what to what extent is this individual a cyborg? Is, yeah. and and I think there's a strong case to be made that yeah, when you are even basic tool use is cybernetic. It's inherently cybernetic. And right, we are yeah. inherently cybernetic organisms. I'm wearing contact lenses right now. That probably makes me a cyborg. Yeah, yeah. 
So and that also involves like you know dental uh, work. Mm-hmm. You know, you're wearing a timepiece on your yeah. arm. Yeah. Wearable computing, um, and you can of course get into this. Isn't even getting into the smartphone. Yeah, the whole smartphone phenomenon. thing is just like mind-blowingly cybernetic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I should also throw in that uh, he took the name cybernetics from the Greek word kubermetes, which means steersman. Uh, uh, and you can think of just sort of the classic image of, uh, you know, a helmsman at a boat. Okay. And, uh, you know, taking the taking the, the old raft across uh, the river Styx. Right, yeah, that's what I was thinking <laughs> of immediately. Why is that? Like, the first helmsman I go to is death. Yeah, I mean, he's a great <laughs> helmsman. He has an important He job. is. He always gets across. Yeah, the coxswain of the dead. Uh, but it's essentially here, the steersman is depending on a constant flow of information, and that governs the interface here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, one of Weiner's, you know, big arguments is, uh, and he doesn't, I don't think, maybe make this explicitly, but, you know, basically it comes across as, are cyborgs modifications that are intended to compensate for deficiencies? So I just mentioned my contacts. Mm-hmm. I have deficient eyesight, so I wear contacts, right? Or are they interventions that are designed to enhance our normal functioning, right? So, I mean, I don't know of this, but are there a lot of people who wear contact lenses to give themselves better than 2020 vision? Um, well, it's not necessarily good if that happens. Right. Because my, yeah. uh, my eyesight changed. Oh, yeah. And it apparently occasionally, like, eyesight gets, like, it improves yeah, a little yeah. as you age. Yeah. Which throws your contacts out of whack. And so that's what happened to me. Oh, so I had okay. to actually get my prescription taken down a little bit. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, so basically we're looking at this as like, is it, in, is, is it both? I think it is. I think it's both. It's both enhancing our, our, our pre-existing abilities, but also uh, compensating for deficiencies that we have. Yeah. But yeah. then there's like a blur somewhere in between. Yeah, because, right? because it's how not do like, you define deficiency? Yeah. And how do you define what's like the what is the ideal human experience that we are either correcting for or going yeah. beyond? Uh, like there's no there's no just a template for the human. There's no basic human. Right. So that line is just always going to be distorted. Yeah, and Haraway, uh, who we're going to talk about later, she's very important to this. Uh, she adds in a distinction that is uh, beyond, you know, cybernetics is beyond anything that fuses the device with a biological organism. It replaces cognition and neural feedback. So it challenges the difference between us as humans and us as animals. So maybe that's a, a way that we can draw the deficiency enhancement line. Although, again, depends on what animal you're comparing yourself to. There are to, plenty right? of examples of animals that use tools, yeah. including uh, many primates, um, crows, as right? Joe and I uh, yeah. discussed in recent episodes. So, so yeah, even when, when you start applying tool use to the scenario, you can make a case that there are plenty of cybernetic um, you know, animals out there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's something to keep in mind as well. It's not just a human phenomenon. So uh, the last bit from Hales that I think is important to consider when you're looking at Weiner is uh, she makes the argument that Weiner is sort of conflicted between his uh, somewhat humanistic endeavor that he envisions for cybernetics and his use or proposal of use of them as being effective killing machines for the military. So there's a little bit of a contradiction there <laughs> that she points out. Uh, and again, I would say, well, can they be both? And clearly uh, the, the Department of Defense would hope so, uh, yeah. <laughs> because as we'll talk about, millions and millions of dollars have gone into us developing cyborgs for warfare. Well, it kind of gets down to the fact that if you were if you're going to repair or you know, or augment the yeah. human form. You're cha- you're also augmenting 
everything that is human, both the good stuff and the bad stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. so hey, a blind man can read a book again, perhaps, mm-hmm. but also maybe a blind man can shoot lasers out of his eyes at the enemy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like a lot of the research that we're seeing that's sort of in its infancy with brain-computer interfaces, that's where it's at right now, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like... Uh, we're, we're developing this so that like maybe a person who's missing a limb can move a robotic limb with their mind. Uh, but the application moves on from there, right? A person with their mind could control a missile yeah. or something. Now, it's important to note that nowadays, very few people call themselves cyberneticists in the, you know, the original sense of the word. Because cybernetics kind of petered out as a scientific discipline for a few different reasons. So it branched off into more promising fields of cognitive science and robotics. Uh, but it also lost out on funding. It couldn't deal with the, the ultimate gap between organic and mechanic mechanisms of control and communication. And the first cyborg uh, recorded in history was a white lab rat that was experimented on at New York's Rockland State Hospital in the late 50s. So that's a good 10 years after Weiner's mm-hmm. making his proposals. Uh, and basically it had a tiny osmotic pump that was implanted inside its body that injected controlled dosage controlled doses of chemicals into it to sort of regulate its physical systems. And, of course, this is interesting, though, because it then again draws us back to what is a cyborg, because perhaps you could... Because just mentioning the pharmaceuticals, like the first human to take a drug, be it, you know, something that uh, found in the woods or certainly our our modern pharmacological world, Mm -hmm. like that is kind of inherently cybernetic. You're changing who you are and, and creating this new, perhaps ideal, idealized version of who you are. So I'm on a penny dreadful kick, uh, as, as you guys out there might know. I've been talking about it a lot on the show lately. And, uh, uh, there's this great quote where, uh, the Victor Frankenstein on the show is a drug addict and he's, I, I, I'm assuming it's heroin or some opiate mm-hmm. that he's constantly injecting into himself. He gives this big speech about why it's okay because basically the body is just a bunch of biological and chemical, chemical processes and all he's doing is either accelerating or decelerating those processes with, uh, the, 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 you know, the narcotics he's applying to himself. So you could sort of look at drug use in general as cybernetics, as you're saying. Yeah, indeed. All right. Now at this point in the narrative, we're going to, uh, fast forward to 1960. Now important note here, this is a year before Earth put the first human being in space. Or more specifically, you know, Soviet Union put the first thing in space. But yeah, it's especially important because what we're going to be talking about is a paper proposed by Manfred E. Kleins and Nathan S. Klein. They have very similar last names. Former with a C, latter with a K. And uh, it's called Cyborgs in Space. And I know that sounds like it would be a joke, but hey, it was in 1960, and they were pitching a legitimate idea for making space travel easier. Yeah, and... Pitching an overall idea, specific ideas, and sort of a, a philosophy of how mm-hmm. to approach taking humans into space. Because the model that ultimately won out, and the model we're still using today yeah. with sending humans into space, is like, all right, look at the human being. Look at Homo sapiens. This is an organism that has evolved not only to live on Earth, but to live in a very slim layer of Earth's atmosphere under certain mm. conditions. We can't, there's places on Earth where we go and we die. Yes. So the environmental constraints are very important for human life. So what we've been doing is we've been taking humans and sending them into space in a capsulized version of their own environment, or as much of one as we can manage. Given right, our yeah, we try technology. to replicate Earth's environment and take that replication with us. Yeah, it's and in a way, it's kind of like I'm going to move from 
Ohio to Florida, mm-hmm. but I'm going to make sure that I have all, I'm bringing Ohio with me, and it's going to be right. like an encapsulated Ohio in Florida. <laughs> yeah, you dig up like a chunk of Ohio yeah. and then move it to Florida and plant it there. Yeah, yeah. my thermostat is always going to keep <laughs> things Ohio. Um, so what Kleins and Klein were arguing here is that, well, how about we we do the, the opposite? How about instead of bringing Ohio to Florida, what if as much as is humanly possible or or transhumanly possible, yeah. you become a Floridian. What yeah. inst- to what extent can we take a human, send them into space, and change the human so that they can actually live in space, or at least they can better manage uh, what is an imperfect um, uh, representation of Earth's environment. Yeah, and what we're getting at here, too, and uh, those of you out there who are sci-fi fans are probably well aware of this, but this is a trope that has been used in science fiction probably before these guys pitched this idea, but but sort of the am I man or am I machine conundrum and, wh- you know, where do I begin and where does the machine end kind of thing that we've seen in pop culture fiction for decades now, right? Yeah. But, but these guys, what's fascinating to me about this is they pitch this whole thing about, like, this is a great way to go to space, and there's not one moment where they think about the ethical quandary of, like, what's left over of the human being that they're putting all this stuff into. Well, they do, and I, I think part of it is, you know, you have to, to, to bear in mind, like, the, the time period, you know? Yeah. Because putting humans in space was and still, still is a just tremendously difficult endeavor and they were saying hey you want to climb the mountain here's a way here are some possibilities this is these are some ways you can climb the mountain yeah and you know it's it's very matter of fact now granted we've we've steered away from from what they outlined but uh but i you know i still think it's a it's a valid argument Uh, maybe it's an argument that ultimately defeats the idea of sending humans into space uh, you know, long term. Right. But, uh, are they human anymore? Right. Or are right. they cyborg? Or if you're having to make all these changes to the human body, yeah. like, does it, th- then why are you doing it to begin with? They're saying that this is a means to an end. Mm-hmm. That if you want humans to go into space, if you want us to expand beyond this world, then you have to change what humans are. And this is a means to an end. Not that we want to become cyborgs, but if this is what you want to be, yeah. this is what you have to become. Transcending Earth's boundaries are the most important thing for us, and we should be willing to commit these acts. Yeah. Um, and the way that they start is with a very basic idea, which is respiration, right? We mm-hmm. we breathe. Uh, and they say, well, you know, for instance, you wear a scuba mask when you go swimming underwater. Why wouldn't you, you know, change your respiration somehow for outer space? Their example or metaphor, I guess, is what if a fish was intelligent enough to engineer itself something that allowed it to live on land and breathe air. And what was fascinating to me about that was, um, and I probably talked about this on the show before, or at least talked to you about it. There's this really great Japanese manga horror called Gyo. Oh, yes. That's all about fish climbing up out of the ocean and they're like strapped into these exoskeletons that like keep them alive and they scuttle around and, and attack people. And it is one of the most horrifying images I can ever think of. So these guys back in 1960 were basically pitching that and saying like, yeah, let's do that. But to, but to human beings, yeah. uh, and the, it, it comes down to efficiency, right? Like these guys were ultimately about efficiently getting into space. Uh, especially when you consider, and we've talked about this before, especially on our Space Mirrors episode, 
or, or also our episode about space weapons, how tremendously expensive it is to propel any mass in outer space, mm-hmm. right? And they talk about human fuel as being sort of a detriment. And when they say human fuel, what they mean is precisely 10 pounds per day, and that's two pounds of oxygen to breathe, four pounds of fluids to drink, and four pounds of food to eat. So that's the way that they look at it, is like... The same way that you would look at, like, well, we need fuel for our space shuttle, right? Right. And how much that weighs and how much it'll cost to fly that up. They're considering the human fuel. Yeah, and it's ultimately, like, the human engineering problem. It's not only the engineering problem of the vessel, but just the engineering problem of the human. Yeah. And space, I mean, I got to say, like, I wrote an episode for our video series Brain Stuff one time that was all about what space would do to the human body and all the horrible ways in which you would die if you were just exposed to uh, space without a suit or anything like that. And it's it's pretty vicious. Uh, so for them, what they were looking at was not just the purpose of the cyborg as being to mitigate those effects, but also to take care of those problems automatically and unconsciously, right? That yes. the cyborg wouldn't be thinking about doing it as they were doing it. And this is this paper is where the word cyborg comes from. They mm. coined it. So um, as we're talking about their their work here, realize that these guys are the the granddaddies of of all the you know ridiculous or um, you know real world ideas that come out of this. But we can see that we're already getting away from uh, Weiner's idea of cyborg just being about the flow of information. Yeah. Right? So I'm going to read a quick quote uh, from uh, Cyborgs and Space, just to give you a taste here. Uh, you know, I feel like we words. should say it like Muppet style, like Cyborgs <laughs> in Space. Yeah. Well, maybe Noel can put some sort of echo. Yeah, on, hopefully. We'll <laughs> quote, what are some of the devices necessary for creating self-regulating man-machine systems? This self-regulation must function without the benefit of consciousness in order to cooperate with the body's own uh, autonomous homeostatic controls. For the exogenously extended organizational complex functioning as an integrated homeostatic system, unconsciously, we propose the term cyborg. The cyborg deliberately incorporates exogenous components, extending the self-regulatory control function of the organism in order to adapt to new environments. So that's basically their thesis statement. They're starting off and saying, like, all right, this is what we're proposing. may seem a little outlandish, but here, let us give you some examples. And when you read through the document, they they go through one by one of, like, here's some cool things we could do to the human body, right? Yeah. It's a very readable document, so I encourage anyone that's interested to to seek it out for themselves. We'll include a link on the landing page for this episode. But some of the ideas that they roll out uh, involve the following. First off, drug-induced wakefulness, which is actually, this is one of the things that we see uh, utilized in modern human Mm -hmm. space travel. Uh, And and this next one uh, calls back to that white rat. Mm -hmm. They wanted to implant osmotic pressure pump capsules uh, in the body that could sense and control mechanisms to automatically administer everything from astronaut speed to hibernation-inducing pituitary drugs. So, and certainly some of these... um, these pharmaceutical products are are utilized mm-hmm. by astronauts, but this would be a situation where they wouldn't even have to think about taking it. It would just happen to their bodies. I wonder what astronaut speed is. Um, I just sounds like the 
the best <laughs> speed. I it's mean, like, but it's dried. It's like it's like uh, astronaut ice cream. Yeah, well, they're gonna get the good stuff. Um, I did a blog post years back. I'll have to link to it on the the uh, the landing page for this episode because uh, there was a, a list available of the various pharmaceuticals that oh, are yeah. available, say, on board a space shuttle or uh, yeah, a then space shuttle or the ISS. Oh, okay. All right, uh, the next uh, recommendation, replace the lung with inverse fuel cells. Okay. They, as- they also talked about altering plumbing, our body's plumbing, I'm assuming, uh, so that wastewater goes through a filter and right back into your blood. Sounds kind of like a still suit to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely, like a, like a, a, a bioengineered still suit. They also uh, talked about enzyme tinkering to create uh, anaerobic organisms, uh, in other words, astronauts that don't require air or can live in different atmospheres. They would also drain your ear fluid or fill them up to cope with weightlessness. Okay. Also, uh, electric-slash-drug cardiovascular control. Drugs that would prevent muscle atrophy. I wonder if that's... I I don't know enough about that topic, but I wonder if that's something they do right now. Um... I haven't uh, looked at the research recently, but it's still that's of course still very much an, an area mm. of interest. Yeah, uh, it seems like it would be, especially those guys who are up there for like a year at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've also talked about lower pre- body pressure, uh, engineering lower bre- body pressure in the human body. Uh, kind of, I, I like to think to facilitate naked spacewalks, <laughs> sort, of, sort of, but essentially saying, all right, we can't, maybe we can't actually put a person out there in the void because yeah. the void is just, I mean, the void is death. Yeah, uh, and it's. But maybe we can make the human body a little less, uh, you know, explosiony. Oh, oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Space does not. Space will kill you. Yeah. Uh, uh, engineering of a light-sensitive, chemically regulated system, which would adjust to its own reflectance, so as to maintain the temperature desired. So we're basically talking about like a. Uh, light regulation system of, of, of the temperature of the body. And that's another thing because like space can go from like being like incredibly hot to being so cold, it'll freeze you dead. Right. Uh, it just in the blink of a shadow. Yeah. Right? You, yeah. You need to be able to absorb solar radiation mm-hmm. when necessary, but also to reflect it when it's just going to cook you. Yeah. Wow. I'm trying to imagine what this cyborg would look like. I wonder if, I wonder if over the years, if anybody's like taken their recipe for the space cyborg and like developed that out somehow into some fan art or something like that. I don't know. I would, I would <clears> love <throat> to see it. Um, yeah. w- one piece of fiction that, that always comes to mind when I, when I think about this paper was a, a Clifford, uh, Simic novel that came out called the werewolf, uh, principle. Okay. Um, and it's essentially a space werewolf story, uh-huh. <laughs> but the, the idea here is that we engineered humans that would go into space and would rapidly adapt to life on other worlds. Okay. And uh, so the space traveler goes to other worlds, adapts into these different forms that allow him to to live in these strange environments. And then when he returns to Earth, he will sometimes shift into these forms. So he's changing into a quote-unquote werewolf, but the werewolf is actually... A form that he adapted on another world and other to, in order to live there. And it's no longer acceptable in Earth's uh, environment and society, right? Like, because yeah. he probably makes them eat people or something. Yeah, I, it's been a while since I've read it, but it's a pretty trippy book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has also has flying houses and brownies. Wow. As in, like, the little fairies. Like, oh, bro, those brownies. Yeah. Wow. Because okay. it just turns out that, oh, yeah. Brownies exist. Like it, like, <laughs> like humans advance to the point where they realize yeah. they realized, oh yeah, there are brownies. They live out there in the woods, huh. and occasionally we can glimpse them. Yeah, this does sound fascinating. Yeah. All right, all right. So, 
needless to say, as we already pointed out, uh, NASA did not take all these recommendations to heart. And um, so there's a certain amount of space between uh, cyborgs in space and where we are now. Yeah. The Atlantic Magazine's uh, Alexis C. Madrigal caught up with uh, co-author Manfred E. Kleins back in 2010. Uh, and by the way, as of this uh, recording, Kleins is still kicking at age 90. Uh, this is Kleins with a C. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Madrigal points out is that uh, many uses of cyborg seem to view the, the human-machine hybrid as, as an end point. So, like, we're going to get to the point where we become the cyborg. Uh, but... Uh, uh, and, and, and maybe as a compromise as well. But Klein saw it as, as that means to the, to an end, a, a quote, a way of enlarging the human experience. Yeah, I highly recommend uh, if, if you're interested in what we're talking about in this episode, go hunt down Madrigal's Atlantic piece. It's really interesting. Basically, what he gets out from talking with Klein is that Klein saw cyborgs as a means to enlarging the human experience. It wasn't just about space for him. And he was focused in particular on expanding our brain's relationship with the world. And to me, like I wrote in my notes, isn't that transhumanism? Like this guy sounds like he's the father of transhumanism yeah. to me. Uh, and, and I know uh, out there, a lot of people have been asking us to do an episode. I think we're going to, if we do, we're going to have to do a two-parter on transhumanism. It's just such a deep topic. Yeah, it's or just something tease it out in, in yeah, episodes like this. clearly interests us. <clears throat> uh, and so the, his focus uh, after the whole, you know, space proposal was on humans communicating without words because, as he put it, language is messy and ambiguous. And w- what struck me about this is if, uh, if, if you know anything about like in the sixties around this time that he was making these proposals, this is when post-structuralism really erupted in communication studies and linguistics. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially, you know, it's, uh, oh God, I can't, uh, simplify post-structuralism into one <laughs> sentence, but I would say his statement of because language is messy and ambiguous is a nice lead-in for post-structuralism. So he was thinking about cyborg ways to get us there and that, leads us uh, to Donna Haraway eventually. But he also, he invented this machine that he talks to Madrigal about called the Computer of Average Transients. And apparently what this thing did was cancel noise impulses in the brain and translated them into averages of their impulses. Um, And the argument is basically like, when we're talking about these electrical impulses, he he means language, like how language is encoded in the brain. Uh, but words don't have averages, right? You can't say like, uh, the word cyborg is 5.6, so let's round it up to six, right? right? Or, or, or the average of, you know, in between whatever, two different numbers gives you a, a number in between it, gives you a word in between two words, right? Um, so it, he's not only does it seem like he is talking about transhumanism at a very early age and He's talking about post-structuralism, but then he's talking about math as language, which is really interesting. Yeah, and and certainly essential to any kind of bridge between organic. So and, yeah, definitely and machine. Yeah, which leads us. It both connects back to Weiner's whole flow of information thing about being a cyborg, but then leads us further down the road of sort of the philosophy of what it would mean to be a cyborg. Indeed. So we've already touched on, uh, you know, a little bit on, on what we call a cyborg, you know, the, the blind man with a cane, a monkey with a stick, glasses, contact lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I would, and I, as I've said, virtually all tool use counts. Like not only because we're picking up and using something, but it all, a lot of it comes down to our body schema, our brain's conception of our body's position in space. Uh, you know, just that alone entails some pretty complex mental processing, you know, just to say, this is where I am. This is space. This is the space around me. And I have yeah. kind of like this virtual version of it in my head, uh, of in a virtual idea of what my body consists of. What are its limits? Uh, you know, what are my limits of control? Uh, so our brains are constantly processing sense feedback to establish where our limbs are at any given moment. And here's the crazy part. When we wield a hammer, when we wield a sword, mm-hmm. uh, when we, you know, use one of those reachy claw thingies to get a, yeah. a can off of, yeah. a, of a shelf. It's an extension. Yeah. Our body schema updates to include that as part of our bodies. Yeah. So on a very like neuroscientific level, we are, we are already cyborgs. And likewise, our memory adapts to use the Internet via transactive memory. We effortlessly outsource the remembrance of data. This is something that I thought about a lot as we were researching this episode, that uh, I don't know about you or the listeners, Mm -hmm. but I have definitely found in the last 10 to 15 years that, like... not only do I have more information available at my fingertips than I ever would have before, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like because my brain only has so much RAM, I have to offload some of that into the cloud, right? And I'm like, well, I can't particularly remember that right now. I'll put it in Google Docs, or I'll yeah. I'll, I'll let Wikipedia hold on to that for me for now, and I won't memorize. I don't know, like. Uh, you know, w- w- where uh, Rod Stewart's from or something, right. some like casual bit of trivial knowledge. Yeah, it's the same phenomenon that would al- that allows or enables uh, like one member of a, uh, you know, of a romantic couple, couple say, to forget like an important date. They yeah. forget it because on, on like a subconscious level, they know that the other individual will remember it. So why <laughs> totally. should it's just pure <laughs> economics, right? Yeah. Why should all members of this group of, of uh, interconnected humans, yeah. a part of this network, why should all nodes on the network carry that data? It doesn't make sense. They should collectively mm-hmm. carry it. Yeah, absolutely. And subsequently, we end up with a iCal or Google Calendar or whatever your your platform of choice yeah. is, right? Like if and, you want to know what it's like to have a cybernetic implant in your brain, you already have it. It's called spell check. I was on my way to work this morning. I'm on the train riding, and my phone buzzes, and mm-hmm. I p- pick it up. I'm like, oh, is this a text message? Nope. It was my phone reminding me that we were recording this episode <laughs> this morning because it's on my calendar. And, of course, this isn't even getting into the whole realm of, say, biomedical implants, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, clients... Heinz and Klein uh, had a very particular obsession. And again, we go back to this. We talked about it with uh, with Weiner, right? That there's an obsession for science in the military with this combination of machine and man. And what it comes down to is how can we escape our annoying bodies, basically, right? And uh, and man, this was a great time for ideas. not only does their paper coincide with the, you know, what I was talking about with post-structuralism, but it also coincides with something so completely on the other side of it, which is the Silver Age of comic books. <laughs> uh, and in particular, you know, I'm not going to go into a whole rant about uh, the Silver Age and explain comics, but the Silver Age was very much about superheroes that were science-oriented, that were sort of above and beyond what the human body could do, right? And so, like, the first Silver Age superhero character is often cited as being the Flash. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the the dream of the Flash, right, is that he can move faster, he can do everything faster than we can because, oh, these bodies are so slow, they're limited, right? 
uh, and it's bringing industry and man together in a way that it sounds like the military was very interested in. This was when we get into uh, Klein's and Klein. Their paper had a lot of influence, uh, and millions of U.S. Air Force dollars were spent developing exoskeletons, robot arms, biofeedback devices, and more. I mean, we are obsessed with this dream. That's why it showed up in our pop culture over and over again. Uh, it, it, the six million dollar man. Oh yeah, or the bionic woman. Yeah, right. I, I think if we were both a little older, like those would be the examples. Yeah. Go yeah. For me, like uh, you know, you mentioned RoboCop. I think of like um, surely Star Trek and Doctor Who had their own iterations mm-hmm. of cyborgs. But and again, like it was, it ultimately comes down to that whole like. Uh, like they're, they're agonizing over the, am I man or am I machine? Where do I, you know, where do I exist? In comics, uh, this character that was just recently portrayed by Paul Bettany in the Avengers movie, The oh, Vision, yes. is an android. And mm-hmm. he, there's this classic comic book cover, uh, with The Vision, and it says, even an android can cry. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to, you know, to, to what extent is a, is, is, is a cyborg either an advancement of the human condition, a lessening of the human condition, or mm-hmm. somewhere nicely neutral in the middle. Yeah. I want to mention one more thing from that Atlantic piece. Um, uh, the, the authors spoke with Kleins, and Kleins presented just this, another wonderful example of what it might mean to be a cyborg and what it means to perhaps you know, already be a cyborg. Yep. And uh, that he presented the example of a cyborg implant that's part of our naturally occurring anatomy. I'd never heard of this before. Yeah, this is crazy. Really, I was like, oh, wow, that's yeah. creepy. I'll give you a second to see if you can guess what it is, listeners. It's the lens of the eye. I'm going to read the quote. The lens is not in any way part of the body, except that it happens to be there. In fact, it has no normal blood supply. It does have liquid surrounding it, but there is no blood supply because if you had blood going through the lens, you wouldn't see too well. Nature has taken care of it. The biological control and invention of the lens is a beautiful and fantastic thing. Yeah, and he, the way he talks about it, he, he and I don't know if this is uh, the author of the Atlantic piece or Kleins himself, but basically says that, our control over the lens of our eye is the nearest thing that we have to telekinesis. Wow. Yeah, because we're talking, you know, it's a conscious movement of the body, but it's the the only one not tied to the brain by neural feedback. You yeah. see the results of thinking at something. You're thinking at it, and it happens, but there's no muscular feedback from uh, from those muscles that activate the curvature of the lens. That's exactly what they were talking about with their whole space proposal, right? right? That we have no knowledge of it operating automatically on its own, and just because we think a thing, it happens. Yeah. There's no feedback, and it's just it just does it. Robocop thinks, and that yeah. big gun pops out of yeah, his Yeah, exactly, uh, right? Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will uh, launch into some ethical quandaries about cyborgs and into uh, even indeed into the idea of cyborg feminism. All right, we're back, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, cyborg ethics. Um, there is a, a British cyberneticist uh, by the name of Kevin Warwick, and uh, a number of you that follow sort of transhuman uh, topics, uh, you may be familiar with him uh, thanks to his series of Captain Cyborg 
uh, experiments. And these inv- generally involved like placing chips in his body. Okay. Uh, and sort of exploring, you know, early examples of what it is to be a human mm-hmm. cyborg based on, you know, circuitry. Uh, but he's also done some thinking about the ethics of it. Particularly, he's, uh, he's asked if humans will one day be required to upgrade to a cybernetic state. Yeah. To become cyborgs, or if they'll be, a li- be able to live their lives in a, a primitive state, which he likens to that of a chimpanzee living in the shadow of a human. I imagine that that is probably like the uh, the heart flutter that a lot of people had when Google Glass hit the scene a couple of years ago. Yeah. I remember, like, will I have was to like, wear those? Now? Oh God, I'm going to have to wear that to interact with society. No, no, I'll go live on a farm somewhere and I will not participate in Google Glass. And luckily, it, it didn't pan out for anybody. Well, it's <laughs> kind of like when you encounter somebody who doesn't have a smartphone, yeah. and which is, I, to a large extent, I applaud those individuals who, mm-hmm. who, who do that. But you also you sort of ask yourself, like, how do you how do you live your life like that? How, you know, how like I we grow so accustomed to being just constantly plugged in that when we're not plugged in, yeah. it it takes something out of you. Like when I went on vacation uh, at the beginning of the year and my smartphone didn't work for a week, it was a little panicky. Yeah, uh, I was I felt a little panicky at first. I had to sort of uh, adjust to this new freedom of not being shackled to this uh, device and all its augmentation. I remember being in my early 20s and I didn't have a cell phone and I was like, I hate that everybody's on these cell phones all the time and they're just Mm -hmm. walking around and talking and texting and not paying attention to the world around them. And I said something to a friend one time, like, I'll never get a cell phone until they can implant them in your skull. (laughs) And then, like, you know, cut to 15 years later, and I've got a smartphone just like everybody else. Yeah, and it is kind of implanted in your skull. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It pretty much is, yeah. But a lot of individuals have 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 studied, have written about the idea of cyborg ethics. Uh, One cool paper that we ran across is uh, one titled Cyborgs and Moral Identity by Grant Gillette published in 2006 in the Journal of Medical Ethics, and it explored several different ethical cyborg quandaries. Uh, it's a fun paper, very readable. The author lays out some, quote-unquote, fanciful cases. <laughs> uh, they often kind of tread into Black Mirror kind of territory. Oh, I'm glad that you noticed that as well. Yeah. yeah, as I was reading through it, I was like, man, this guy's just pitching Black Mirror episode after episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it, they all kind of come down to the same question. If we cybernetically enhance... A human, if we cybernetically enhance the brain, then to what extent is the resulting mind, the resulting person still human? Some of the, uh, some of the exam, I'm going to roll through some of the examples yeah. here. Um, uh, I'm not My gonna, favorite one is the last one. Yeah, the last one's the one we'll talk about in more depth because that's the problem, yeah. right? So he discuss, discusses neuro reconstruction of a three-year-old severe brain injury. It ends up changing who the three-year-old is, but the three-year-old, the three-year-old gets to, to live. Yeah. Okay. And I think most people can get are okay with that one because it's like yes. you saved a life, right? Right. And and it's not perfect, but you saved. All right. The next one's cybernetic eyes for the blind. Yeah, the Jordy LaForge scenario. Yeah, everybody's cool with Jordy. Another one: extensive brain injury and then replacement with micro networks. So this is like the natural uh, evolution of, of brain computer interfaces. Yeah, and saying like, oh, there's damage to the brain, but we can fix it mm-hmm. with uh, with this new technology. All right, and again, we're we're treating. Uh, a wound. We're treating an injury. Yeah. Everybody's generally okay with that. Uh, an unborn child with an incompletely formed brain, and then doctors grow that brain out with cybernetic techniques to ensure the child is born with a working brain. This one's a lot. Yeah, that sounds like the beginning of a horror story to me. Well, yeah, I guess it could be. But 
or but you could also say that it forestalls the the real life horror story oh, of yeah. the child dying. Right, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So I think this one this one's it's more catch twenty two. Yeah, this one's a little more problematic because mm-hmm. you're you're changing the, the 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 human in utero, creating a cyborg in utero, and then and then you have to ask to what extent is the resulting child still human. the child. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. But then there's the uh, the Peggy story, and you want to take this one? Uh, sure, yeah. This is so. This is the one that the most felt like a Black Mirror episode to me, and and I, genuinely, as I'm reading this academic article, the twist to the story, I went, oh, <laughs> ooh, like it it sent shivers up my spine, like the twist to one of those old like uh, 1950s horror comics. Uh-huh. All right, so. Uh, Basically, the idea here is that uh, Bob and Peggy are a couple and they have problems. Uh, uh, Peggy's depressed, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so they rent Cybo Help, which is like an android that's customized to come in and be compassionate and take care of Peggy and kind of like help her get beyond her depression. Her presence cheers everybody up and Peggy undergoes neuropsychiatric uh, treatments and becomes her old self, right? Yeah. And one of the the keys here is that the um, the android has these like symbols on the yeah. back of her skull that show like which which features she's been loaded with. And I think it's you know like there's some for like artistic uh, abilities, and the most important one is uh, is uh, is one that allows the uh, the android to, uh, to to show compassion. Yeah. So Bob and Peggy, they say, "Hey, everything's fine now. Peggy's fine." Uh, she had this procedure. Which is good. Yeah. Uh, so they say, well, we don't need the android anymore. They send her back to the plant. Uh, and uh, at the end of it, Bob is like stroking Peggy's hair or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he notices that she's got the raised embossed indentations of lettering the same way that the android did on the back of her head. Ah. So it's implied, wait, what did that android do to my wife when I wasn't home? Right? Oh, yeah, there's like a thing in there where he takes an extended business trip. Yeah. And that's what, and when he gets back is when he notices that. So it's a little, a little bit like Stepford Wives, too, uh-huh. right? There's a, uh-huh. there's a very, very much a, like a sexist, uh, theme here as well. Uh, but ultimately it, this one is more problematic, right? Because what happened to Peggy? Yeah. What happened to the old Peggy? Was that the real Peggy? And is the new Peggy the new Peggy? Yeah. Where's Peggy? It also says something, and I don't know if this is just Grant Gillette or, or us, or how we approach this topic, but like how we think of depression too, yeah. as like, that's a thing you cure. Yeah. We we'll have a robot come in and just <laughs> fix it. Yeah, he makes two main observations with all of these. Uh, one, we are less concerned with the cybernetic components of the, per- if the per- of the person if they seem peripheral or somewhat incidental to their psychological identity or character. Okay, so we're cool with augmentations. That's no big deal. Yeah, uh, because certainly you apply that to real life. We augment ourselves all the time. The yeah. cup of coffee is an augmentation. A pair of glasses is an augmentation. But generally, you don't. People may joke about they're not themselves until they have that cup of coffee, oh, yeah. but nobody actually believes that. You know what's cybernetic for me? Taking a shower. Yeah. Like, I was thinking about that this weekend. Like, what did people do before showers? <laughs> because if I don't have a shower, I feel exhausted and tired and gross. But then, like, you get in that shower and it's just, boom, I'm ready for the day. I don't yeah. know what it is. I'm the same way. Yeah. Uh, his second observation is that, quote, we are more concerned where a non-human mode of relationship or reaction or response to others emerges. So that's pretty basic, right? When, when yeah. you're, 
when, when the result seems non-human or the, the relationship is not, seems non-human, then we're saying, okay, what's, what's wrong? This is not a cybernetic scenario I can get behind. So Gillette, like proposing all of these fictional scenarios is basically getting at the, his big question, which is how should we morally treat a cyborg, right? We still treat each other. Well, we like to think we do <laughs> as moral agents when we're interacting with each other through diaries or computers or even antidepressants, right? Now, again, I say I, I like to think we do and then like go take a look at some YouTube comments sometimes. I don't know that they're necessarily moral agencies at play there. But uh, his argument is if we're uh, ethical and moral to one another through those things, shouldn't we do the same thing if our brain is somehow connected to technology? Yeah, it's it's uh, the, the Peggy example, especially like the more yeah. you chew on it, because you have the android who is fake yeah. and is just, you know, a servant that is then turned back over. But if the same things that 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 make her seem genuine like the same sort of, uh, you know, uh, emotional programming. If that same programming is used to, quote, unquote, fix Peggy, then is Peggy fake now, too? And yeah. then by but then if the reverse is true, then was the android a real person as well? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be non-human? You know what? This is a perfect segue into the Donna Haraway uh, conundrum, the cyborg manifesto. We're talking about Peggy and her depression and her female identity and whether or not it changes or is the same if she mm-hmm. gets somehow computerized. That leads right into Haraway. Yes, we are now uh, somewhere around 1985, uh, and we're talking about a cyborg manifesto by Donna J. Haraway. She is Distinguished Professor Emerita of the History of Consciousness Department and Feminist Studies Department at the University of California, Santa Cruz. They have a History of Consciousness Department. Yeah. Or they did. (laughs) Who knows if their funding is still available, but that's pretty cool. So uh, let's just get this out of the way. We both uh, read or, in my case, attempted to read the Cyborg Manifesto. It's dense reading. I will warn you out there, people. Uh Haraway has written this in a very kind of postmodern philosophical styling that it doesn't necessarily read like your traditional academic paper in that it, you know, it doesn't set up a methodology for you and then Mm -hmm. walk you through an experiment and tell you what the conclusions were. A lot of it is her riffing on the ideas of what being a cyborg means. Yeah. And you kind of have to unravel what she means and what her argument here is as well. Uh, but ultimately, it's uh, it, it's a very compelling argument and one that, uh, that that really beautifully transforms and illuminates the idea of cyborg that we've been discussing this whole episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it particularly useful. Uh, and in 1997, uh, Robert found an article in Wired, was written by Hari Kunzru, that uh, basically deconstructs mm-hmm. uh, Haraway's cyborg manifesto and explains it much better. Uh, and l- let's see if we could take a stab at it here. But uh, you know what? Let's start with that quote, just to give our listeners an idea of what kind of reading material it is. Quote, by the late 20th century, our time, a mythic time, we are all chimeras, theorized and fabricated hybrids of machine and organism. In short, We are cyborgs. The cyborg is our ontology. It gives us our politics. The cyborg is a condensed image of both imagination and material reality. The relations between organism and machine has been a border war. Yeah. 
Okay. I think it's fair to say, and this is written in the notes here. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> uh, this is what I got out of reading it directly, but then let's turn to that Wired article okay. to see if we can unpack it a little bit more. So first of all, she sees cyborgs everywhere. And keep in mind, she wrote this in 1985, which, you know, as we talked about earlier, that's when we were growing up seeing them in pop culture everywhere. Right. But she sees them in war. She sees them in sex. She sees them in medicine. Uh, and her thesis is essentially that cyborgs are a fiction that maps out our social and bodily reality that she, that can suggest what she calls fruitful couplings. And I think what she means by fruitful couplings are sort of like a redefinition of identity mm-hmm. uh, in such a way that is beneficial to the individual. We'll see, we'll see if I'm right about that or not. But yeah, we're all chimeras, right? And in particular, that's important to her. And this is where it's not uh, cyber feminism or cyborg feminism is not her term, but it comes out of this paper. Cyborgs are post gender beings, right? Or at least they're capable of being so. Uh, and going back all the way to us talking about Weiner and Catherine uh, Hayes paper about him. Haraway sees cyborgs as being inherently a confluence of both militarism and capitalism. And she breaks down, she says there's three boundaries that come into play when we're talking about cyborgs. There's the human versus animal boundary. There's the organism versus machine boundary. And then there's the physical and non-physical boundary. And I guess like that one to me gets us back to that like flow of information thing, right? The, yeah, the, definitely. The, that's the uh, non-physical. Yeah, the, the flow of information, the network of information, um, that's very essential to all of this. But again, a lot of you are probably wondering, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so let's turn to that uh, Kunzru uh, article. Uh, he profiled and chatted with Haraway for that piece. And the, the one of the more useful examples that he brings up, and this is one where he's talking to her uh, about this, is the example of doping in sports. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Haraway sees this as just irrelevant because... Train, quote, training and technology make every Olympian a node in an, in an international technoculture network. So winning an Olympic foot race isn't just about running fast or running faster because you took this uh, particular medication. Right. It's about, quote, the interaction of medicine, diet, training practices, clothing and equipment manufacturer, uh, manufacturer visualization and timekeeping. In other words, yep. th- that that Olympic runner is the product of just this vast interconnected system, these ideas yeah. of what a runner is and all of these technologies that make it possible. And it's all artificial to her, yeah. right? Like all of that is an example of being a cyborg. She even goes so far as to point out that before the Civil War, I didn't know this, before the Civil War, there weren't right and left shoes. Huh. You just had shoes. Uh, and that the, the invention of a right shoe and a left shoe you know, was essentially, yes, it was for comfortability, but also to, you know, maximize walking and running. Yeah. To say nothing of Reebok pumps. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all those, all those sweet hoops that you're. Yeah. And so Haraway actually addresses 
the feminism thing here. And it basically comes down to that she doesn't buy into that version of feminism that is she calls, quote, goddess feminism, where, man, I really want Kristen and Caroline to weigh on this, our, our colleagues who do stuff uh-huh. mom never Yeah, I thought about you. that. I, I did a quick search. I don't think they've covered this topic before, but I think yeah. it would be perfect. For yeah, them. it would be awesome. Uh, so anyway, she doesn't she doesn't buy into that. The, the, the kind of idea that uh, you, you, you shake off the modern world and somehow connect to Mother Earth, right? Uh, instead, she sees that the realities of modern life uh, include a relationship between people and technology. And this is such an intimate relationship between those things that it's impossible to tell where we begin and they end. So, again, we're getting back to that science fiction cyborg i'm thinking of like episodes of star trek the next generation with data right yeah he's like am i human am i an android Uh, as opposed to the borg model which is very much like look you can see the human part is the white skin stuff Uh and then the rest is just all uh you know tryptolose madness (laughs) so yeah so for her one of the fundamentals about cyborgs and how we're connected to modern society is one of our most important commodities. It's a commodity that you're listening to right now and that Robert and I make a living off of information. Uh, cyborgs are information machines, right? Mm-hmm. So I think like in a way we could say like, uh, if you out there right now are listening to podcasts like I do, you've got your phone, there's some kind of platform on it. Uh, it's running uh the mp3 file and you're listening to us talk about cyborgs while you're doing whatever your laundry your commute uh you know whatever mm-hmm. you're exercising uh that is making you into an information machine and yeah. we're part of that information machine yeah indeed um so like one of the ideas here too is that there's there's no longer a dichotomy of natural and artificial in our world everything is chimera everything is cyborg and here's the thing. There's no natural order. There's only the order of reinvention. Yeah. We are all the new Peggy. Um, and we can be any version of Peggy that we want to be. Yeah. And this, uh, this is where it, it gets really relevant, I think, to, um, modern day society, right? So Haraway further goes into it by talking about erotic fascination with cyborgs. She refers to, quote, the violation of boundaries by a cyborg as a pleasurable tight coupling between parts that are not supposed to touch. Hmm. And I read that and I thought of, and I hope you haven't seen this and I don't wish it upon any of our audience, but the episode of Torchwood, the TV show that is called Cyberwoman. Oh, have you seen this? I may have watched this one. Is this like first or second season? Yeah, first season. This is a bad one, right? Oh, it's terrible. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah I did yeah. watch this one. Yes. And it's, and it's, you know, basically the premise is, uh, in the Doctor Who universe, there are these cyborgs called Cybermen, uh, and they just look like big kind of like, uh, robots. Yeah. But they've got like human brains in them or some, some organic parts in them. And, uh, somewhere along the line, they, this woman was made into a cyber woman. And so she's like conflicted with, uh, between man and machine. But the, the design that they did for this episode is just so insulting to this poor actress. She's basically wearing like a cyborg bikini. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and it really, to me, I was like, oh, there's that erotic fascination, uh, with the pleasurable tight coupling of the cyborg, right? Like, mm-hmm. Like, clearly somebody who had access to the BBC's uh, finances was like, this is what our viewers want. They want to see this half-naked cyborg lady. And to me, that leads us to the the real heart of it, uh, the the heart of Haraway's 
argument, the transhumanism, everything we've been talking about here today. And this comes via Hales. Uh, and she says the cyborg becomes a stage on which are performed contestation about body boundaries that have often marked class, ethnic, and cultural differences. So we're looking at a complex hybridization that's going to get rid of our old-fashioned concepts of what is natural versus what is artificial, right? Like, right. So again, like, I, and I, this is what I imagine Haraway was thinking of. Breast implants was probably what she was thinking of when she was thinking about the like the erotic fascination of cyborgs, right? Uh, but it throws away binary concepts like gender, right? And as we're re- recording this, it made me think of what's going on in North Carolina right now with uh, this law that's got a lot of people upset on both sides about transgender people and public restrooms. Yeah. Uh, and w- you know, wherever you fall on that, that is a transition from a binary duality that is totally freaking people out. Right. Uh, and that's just the beginning. Like when you think about the cyborg transition that our whole world is going through right now, get ready for infinite identities, like any possible combination. We're just squeamish right now about a, something that doesn't fit into one of our two categories, mm-hmm. right? For restrooms, Cyborgism makes uh, an infinite possibility of identities available or genders available, right? Yeah, indeed. I, I mean, it also reminds me of the, uh, the recent episode that we did on hyper religions, mm. uh, and some. Of, I think we've had conversations about this as well about uh, religious beliefs that are, you know, kind of the salad bar approach to religion. Yeah, it's like. A lot of us are engaging in a kind of cybernetic religion. Instead of saying, like, this is an absolute truth, and instead of saying this is an absolute truth, we're saying, you know, I'm going to build my truth out of this element and this element and this element and create the kind of cyborg uh, um, worldview that makes the most sense to me. Yeah, totally. Uh, And and Haraway actually has a quote that, actually makes sense to me uh, with regards to this, especially to absolutes. She says, good or bad, nature or nurture, right or wrong, it's messier than that. Yeah. And that's that's a great way to put it. Like, it's messier than that. So if you're uh, gnashing your teeth one way or the other over what's going on in North Carolina right now, it's messier than that. Yeah. And then there's the uh, the networked aspect of all of this. So we're not isolated individuals within our own skulls. We're, we're essentially part of the matrix. We're, we're all part of that massive battery. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's one of the things that she drives home is that we are, we are, we, we are all networked together. And that's something that should, uh, that, that we should pay more attention to and not, uh, disregard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that subsequently, out of all of Haraway's ideas is where we get cyber feminism from. And this is not her term. That's right. And uh, this means that there is no natural role, quote unquote, natural for a female in society, that we're past that and that we're already kind of, of post-human in that respect. And I think Kunzru sums it up nicely in that Wired paper from 97, quote, feminists around the world have seized on this possibility. Cyber feminism is based on the idea that in conjunction with technology, it's possible to construct your identity, your sexuality, even your gender, just as you please. And that is kind of, I think, the appeal of transhumanism. This is the Mm -hmm. point where I think we're moving from cyborg to transhuman, right? Or at least 
the the conceptions. Maybe they're the same thing when you get down to it, right? I'm, I'd, I'd be curious what Haraway's take is on that. But yeah, that's what we're talking about is really kind of uh, evolving your identity beyond what is considered your natural state, right? And of course, this also ties into the whole area of race and racial identity. Sure. Um, which is certainly certainly falls under that messy category that Haraway uh, uh, laid out uh, in her paper because you know th- there are aspects of of racial and transracial identity that we're mm-hmm. we're, we're very open to exploring in in, in our, our modern uh, culture there are other areas that are a lot more taboo like for instance oh, yeah. identifying as african american if you are in fact of caucasian descent right um, yeah like this brings to mind uh, the story of uh, NAACP um, uh, leader Rachel Dolezal that came out uh, right. in recent years. Yeah, uh, the specific example here being that she was born Caucasian to a Caucasian family, but that she was portraying herself. Yeah, as and said that she African identified American. as African American. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's, this was an idea that no, basically nobody was comfortable with. Yeah, everybody this did not go over well in the would, media. Uh, and and so Haraway, you know, she says. Well, but everything can be reconstructed uh, between technology and biology, right? So then everything's up for grabs, uh, identity-wise. So all basic assumptions about, quote-unquote, how things are come into question. So, uh, she, you know, whether we're talking about identity, ethnicity, gender, all of it is fluid. And here's the part, right? Like, mm-hmm. like... We see examples like that pop up or the North Carolina restroom thing pop up and, and it's like they seem like they're blips. We cannot escape this. This is where humanity is heading. Mm-hmm. And it's just these are kind of like, I guess, growing pains along the way. Yeah. I mean, I it makes me think of uh, uh, pretty much any kind of transhuman topic. Uh, makes me think of uh, uh, Ian M. Banks' culture series. Oh, yeah. In uh, in that setting, the the humans of the culture they live these extra long lives. They're they're able to consciously um, and perhaps subconsciously uh, administer various levels of pharmaceuticals into their own body to, yeah. to to meet whatever their needs are. But they also, throughout their long lives, they'll change their own gender. Uh, they'll change their. They may decide they need wings. They might want to sort of change species. Uh, they want, might want to live in a virtual environment instead of a physical one. And uh, I can I can't remember remember a specific example, but I can well imagine an individual in the culture changing their race yeah. and it being no big deal either. Yeah, yeah. But we're not quite there yet. No. Uh, for a number of reasons. Maybe that'll. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm stretching a little too far here, but maybe that will be. We we visit this idea often on the show. A couple hundred years from now, people will look back at us and be like, oh, they were just so uptight. Yeah, they were so stuck on their identities, their singular identities. Uh, and now we're all cyborgs. Well put, well put. Now, we don't have time to go into into all of these in this episode, but I do want to, to mention that Haraway's work has been tremendously influential uh, on individuals in a number of different, different disciplines. Uh, she's in, influenced uh, views on science. Economics, computer development, thermodynamics, information theory. So yeah, you can, you can go online and you can look yeah. up cyborg economics and it is a thing that people have written about, um, rather exhaustively. Yeah. And so I, you know, here's how I want, I want to close it out how, uh, we started off. Okay. So somebody out there is writing a screenplay right now for DC's cyborg movie. <laughs> uh, and I think that there's a lot of potential there. 
I don't knowing knowing what I know about superhero movies and in particular Warner Brothers superhero movies. I'm not, you know, uh, I don't have a lot of high hopes that they're going to particularly address uh, Donna Haraway's themes, for instance, <laughs> in the cyborg movie. But hey, if you're listening and you're working on the cyborg movie, maybe think about uh, the fluidity of identity that cyborg uh, could have or. The flow of information, that seems to me like something that they'll probably tap into. They're like real excited about the idea of humanity connecting with machines and, and using information as like power in a way. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the character is African-American, right? He is. Is that yeah. explored at all in the comics? Like the idea that like the transformation of, Not of really. self and I don't I, I don't remember machines. it ever being explored as like. Uh, it's not specifically like ethnically. No, mm-hmm. there is a point where he transcends being human and he sort of becomes, uh, like the T 1000. Uh-huh. He turns into this like gold liquid metal. Uh, and that I think that I think was maybe somebody saying like, Oh, well the natural extension for the cyborg thing would be that it would be beyond uh, the identity of, of, of being African-American or of being even human. Right. Huh. But, uh, he was so recognizable in the other form that they, they brought him back around to the, to the form that, uh, will be in the movie. You got to put something on the, 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 the comic book cover. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I wonder if he's going to go into outer space, if there's going to be a little nod to Klein's and Klein yeah. there with the outer space stuff. And then, you know, surely I, I would imagine they would talk about the ethics uh, surrounding it, how he will be treated. And what I'm concerned about, though, is that it's going to end up being like all that 1980s cyborg fiction we grew oh, yeah. up with, which is just, you know, agonizing over humanity. Yeah. Uh, is he human anymore? Is he yeah. not? And a gun comes out of his leg. Right, exactly. (laughs) All right, well, we will see. We will see. Yeah. But yeah, I hope they incorporate some of those ideas. That would be, that would be very cool. Well, uh, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job of tackling the theory, the philosophy of cyborgs. We maybe didn't get into the technology that you might be interested in. Uh, but you know, out there, let us know. Let us know what you know about cyborgs that we missed. Uh, you know, what do you think about Haraway and, uh, cyber feminism or the ethics surrounding this, uh, the black mirror style Peggy Android as wife scenario? Yeah, indeed. And, and one thing I would love to hear is, first of all, I would love to hear people take what you, what we've talked about in this episode and apply that to like a night, bad 1980s cyborg yeah. and give, give us an like nice, intelligent read on that simple character yeah. or likewise if you can think of an example of a really intelligent treatment of of cyborgs in fiction yes. that does tie into this material i would definitely want to hear about that man there's a there was a missed opportunity when they remade robocop mm-hmm. they had a lot of opportunity to dive into some of this stuff but they just kind of remade it oh yeah i haven't seen that one yet it's but. not bad but it's just you know i it's pretty much just a remake, and then they have more CGI, so there's a lot more crazy gunplay. Because hmm. I remember the original explored it a little bit, like the whole bit. Maybe it was in the sequel where they were like, oh, well, this isn't him. This is just yeah. this is a tribute to him. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. That was in there. So, hey, you want to get in touch with us? Pull that cybernetic enhancement out of your pocket. Uh, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You'll find videos. You'll find blog posts. You'll find links out to our social media accounts like Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram. And you could use the old-fashioned cybernetic way of getting in touch with us. Write us an email. You could use it on a desktop computer or a mobile device or maybe with your mind. We are at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 